This podcast is supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests 4% of its after-tax profits in projects that benefit people, our communities and the planet. To find out more, go to bankost.com.au, where you bank every day makes a difference. It has been unbelievable, the people I've met and spoken to, and will probably be the best thing I ever do in my life because I have so much more faith in humanity and the world than I did 10 months ago. Hi, I'm Jane Nethercote from Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. This month, our editor and publisher, Barry Lieberman, caught up with Damon Gamo, the filmmaker behind That Sugar Film, who embarked on a personal and very entertaining journey to highlight hidden sugar in the modern diet and how it affects us all. To be honest, we should not have been distracting him. We are George R.R. Martin levels of excitement about his next documentary, 2040. It's all about the future and how the world could look if we started to address climate change using the technology we have right now in 2017. It focuses on hope and not despair. We loved hearing from Damon about embracing his inner dag and how to tell a really good story. I'm super excited that you're here and that we're having this conversation. Um, I have a lot of questions that aren't about that sugar film because I want to know what's coming. I know I want to have like many hours of conversations with Damon in general about how we're going to map out the future and what the narrative of humanity looks like. So to start, that sugar film went ballistic. It was hugely successful. What was the impact as you understand it on the world and then on you personally? Well, they're kind of, they're one and the same in, in a lot of ways because it has um, fundamentally changed my life in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I guess um, probably, like I've been an actor for 12 years and, and sort of always felt a little frustrated by it. It's, it's inherently very narcissistic as an industry. And um, people would sometimes come up and stop and say, oh, hey, I saw you and, you know, and I'd say, oh, thanks. And I'd always feel a bit embarrassed about it. And then since Sugar's come out, you know, two or three times a day, someone comes up and says, oh, my husband's reversed his type 2 diabetes or my kids have seen your film. And I mean, that has a profound impact on, on, I guess, your sense of who you are in the world and what you might leave and what you're doing here, um, which I was always scared to confront. I guess it was easy to hide behind acting because it is, you know, you get fed and people clap and say, well done. And this was very different and, and took a lot of... Um, I guess, work on myself to put myself out there and actually say something that I was passionate about in the world. So to sort of receive that kind of feedback is, is really special. Um, so that's the, the day-to-day impact, but just to see what a film can do. Like, I mean, I think um, Hollywood has understood this for years, that films are very powerful in shaping narratives and shaping our values and how we perceive the world. And quite often they're not done, I think, in a positive way. So to see the impact that this film has had on schools, on um, uh, the Aboriginal communities, on at policy levels. I mean, we've had uh, two screenings in the UK Parliament, one with, uh, with Jamie Oliver, 
and they've now they're about to introduce the sugary drinks tax you know so to think that you can make this little film and it might actually have ramifications for generations to come um, is is quite overwhelming when you think about it and um, I don't think about it very often um, uh, and so I guess that's really inspired you know the next film is 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 what you know what can we do what how how what role can film play in affecting change in other areas you said that you had to do work on yourself to tell the meaningful story what what do you mean by that uh i think that i like a lot of people um really had a low sense of uh, my role in the world or, or the courage to actually speak out in my own voice what 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 to try and find my essence and go what's unique about what i can offer in the world and um, I guess in my 20s, I'd, I'd really worked hard at cultivating this image of an actor that smoked rollies and drank red wine and wore velvet jackets and was good with the ladies. And, um, God, it was exhausting to keep that up. <laughs> and, um, and then I um, my, I'd met my wife and um, wonderful, wonderful wife. And we, she, she's quite into sort of health and nutrition and stuff. And so I said, I want to try this detox, this kind of benzonite clay kind of stuff you drink for three days and your poo looks like weird plastic stuff. And, um, sorry. And um, I said, well, if we do that, like, we're going to, I'm going to have to do something to fill the time. I can't just not eat for three days. And I'd written this really stupid little song on a set of a, of a, film, a show I was doing in Ireland. And it's like a kid's um, song about animals. And she said, let's make a film clip to that. So we cut out all these little shapes. My mum helped print it out and we cut out these shapes and made this little stop motion animation. And so we said, oh, you've got to enter that into Trotfest. And I said, no, there's no way anyone's seeing that because it goes directly against my really cool actor image. And this is incredibly daggy and, and silly. Cats and dogs and 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 cats and so we entered it and it fucking won, you know. So it was this, and all my fears of putting myself out there and, and revealing myself, which was quite daggy, came true and I got absolutely smashed and people accused it of plagiarism and people were saying, you know, should hand back your prize and you know, all the things I'd feared about putting myself out in the world happened. Um, and it was the best thing that ever happened because I went, oh, that's it. Like I'd given it all the significance and thought, I can't ever do that. And there it was punching me in the face. And I stood up again and went, oh, okay, just make stuff. It's okay. It doesn't hurt as much as you think it's going to hurt. And that's, that's how it all kind of transpired. And then I met Madman after Trotfest, the production company, and they said, do you want to make a film? And I was like, uh, yeah, I think so. Um, and just loved the idea of making a film about sugar because of that Willy Wonka aesthetic, the madness and the colour that you could bring to film and, and subvert all the tactics and tricks that the food industry have used on us so brilliantly, but do it in a healthy way. So that's really how it started. And then I guess something or the universe, whatever you want to call it, rewarded me for jumping off the cliff and, and really, you know, giving it a go. And I think, um, yeah, it's like I said, it's fundamentally changed my life and how I think about myself and my own belief of what, what I care about. What do you think it is that made it so successful? Because it is not a finger-wagging film. Well, it's I think you nailed it there. I mean, playful. I, um, I remember at the time uh, there was another film that came out around the same time called Fed Up, which was, um, again, a look at the sort of more the political aspect of the food industry. But you, you could tell it in a very serious way. I mean, it's a serious issue, you know. Um, but I said it before. I had a quote from Oscar Wilde in my office, and it said, if you want to tell people the truth, you've got to make them laugh or they'll kill you. 
And I think it's really pertinent, especially when you're dealing with a $50 billion sugar industry, because they might kill you, um, <laughs> that, you know, we, we, no one likes being told. And no one especially likes being told what to eat. I mean, that's, the, that's just the golden rule. Don't, I'll, don't tell me what I can uh, and can't eat. What we were trying to do is, is penetrate the quinoa curtain, which is get out beyond that <laughs> eastern suburbs. It can be a kale curtain. I mean, kombucha curtain. But it's a curtain. And, and how do we get, you know, people... And that, that's the most rewarding thing of the film is that, um, I mean, go to somewhere in the suburbs and people come up and go, oh, mate. And, and they say, I've never watched a documentary before. You know, but I watched your film and that's just like because that, that was always the intention is to make it fun and make it accessible because um, they're the people that need to see it you know um, so it's a similar principle with the new film how do you take something that can be quite complex and hard to um, grasp what's a fun way of conveying that information to people so just catch that space in the middle between that sugar film and 2040 what lessons did you learn from the first film that you're taking with you into this next one? Um, there's so many positives I've learned around when people are empowered, they can do amazing things. And that I think the real food movement is one of the most incredible things in the world and may even affect climate change more than we realise. I think it's one of the most incredible leaderless group movements that's going on in the world at the moment. So to see what um, an educated public can do in terms of, you know, what what shocked me was how many companies invited me in and said, right, we know this is coming, what do consumers want? Do we reformulate our foods? Do we put clearer labels? So they are completely responsive to the market and what the public want, they will give. So that was a really interesting lesson in terms of, of understanding when we reclaim that power, how incredibly strong we can be. And, and that sort of ties into the new film of, you know, how that sort of sense of democracy has been shut down deliberately over the last 200 years but that's another story and and that's probably something that i learnt like that if you empower humans they do really good things it's just that we've had a hand on our head for a long time um and we've a, a, an environment's been set up that isn't conducive for collaboration and um rational sensible decision making uh, an environment's been orchestrated to keep us in a state of fear and division and competition and once we break free of that, wonderful things happen. And, and you see it in crisis or when there's emergency events, we all come together and we do great things because I do think that's a natural state and it's just been kept from us for a long time. But also, I think, and that's what we do at Dumbo Feather as well, hope is entirely pragmatic. Yeah. The, everything yeah, else... There's different type, I reckon there's, there's different hopes and I think there's a, there's a fraudulent hope that gets paraded election time and that's, that's what Rebecca Solnit calls an acquiescence to a lie. That's like, that's paralysing hope. But then there's this hope that, you know, rewards heroism and is unbridled and it lurks in the shadows and people get on board and, and they feel when it's genuine. Um, and that's what we're trying to tap into, that, that it's a genuine hope. This isn't just the, the one that gets wheeled out, you know, because people have been ripped off for too long on that hope. So you, that's your takeaway from this remarkable project and the success of the project. And it leads you into the film 2040, which is being finalised now. Is it? Where are we at? Um, we're <clears throat> 11 months in, which has basically been uh, script writing, uh, collaborating with different partners around the world, researching, and then we start shooting in, in about two months. Um, and it's going to be about a six-month shoot. 
I reckon. Um, Do you want to explain to everyone the premise yeah, for 2040? Yeah, the premise is that it's a, it's a documentary set in 2040 that looks back to now and maps out a blueprint for change of how we got to a more sustainable and equitable planet. So in the sense that the narrative at the moment around the future is quite dystopic and the future that we see is often blue and cold and austere and devoid of nature and terrorism reigns and whatnot. And we're trying to say, you know what, that's, it's time for a new narrative. Like, that's actually not helping us. That, uh, in fact, studies show that it paralyzes us. If we see images of skinny polar bears and melting ice caps, we turn away and we just go to Twitter or whatever because it's too, our brain can't comprehend the enormity of facing our own extinction. So we actually need new devices to get action. And so what we're doing is looking at all the great solutions that are that currently exist in the world. And if we shifted them into the mainstream in the next four or five years, what would 2040 look like? So that we show this collective vision that we can all strive for and go, yeah, I want my kids to live there or I want to live there. And we go, you know what? Everything you just saw exists. Like it's here now. We just need to give it more airtime because the mainstream narrative is not giving it that airtime. And it has been unbelievable, the people I've met and spoken to. And... Um, will probably be the best thing I ever do in my life because I have so much more faith in humanity in the world than I did 10 months ago. Um, and the reason I'm making this is, and the narrative is that it's a letter to my daughter on her 21st birthday in 2040, looking back at her life and what's happened in that time. And, um, and so, you know, it, she's inheriting that world. And, and what we're doing right now you know, I get f so angry at Trump or whatever when they're shutting down EPA and stuff. Because you're doing that to my daughter. That's that's what you're doing to my child, and we have to find a way through that. You know, and um, get people to engage with the seriousness of it. That that we are facing a very, 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 very serious time in our lives. And I think now it's going to be the greatest time. I, I'm, I feel incredibly proud and excited to be alive in this moment because I've seen what's going on around the world now. And there is this collective yearning for change in, in food, in democracy, in agriculture, in energy, all sorts of factors. And I feel that this will be, we'll look back at this time and go, great, this actually, this galvanised us into more action. It's not enough to just like something on Facebook anymore. You've got to go out in the street. You've got to actually take charge. Um, we can't be passive to this anymore. So... Along that journey to date, what are some of the most interesting things that you have learned mm, that you can question. share? Uh, very good question. One of the things that probably surprised me is there's, a, there's an, an incredible initiative called Project Drawdown. And they've looked at, because I think the failure of the environmental movement has been the language is all wrong. So people um, talk about tackling climate change, but what is it? Like it's such an ephemeral idea that how do you tackle it like it's it's tricky so these guys have pulled together 400 scientists and said like here's the 100 best things we can do as a collective to actually help the planet and in terms of sequestering carbon so putting it back into soil or you know forestry things like that and one of the well the most important thing which was a bit of a surprise is educating women so the stats are that in low-income countries, there are 225 million women that say they would like more control as to whether they have babies or not. So as a result, there's around 75 million unwanted pregnancies. So if we get that right, 
we save 1.3 billion people, extra people being on the planet by 2050. So the impact on resources and whatnot is enormous. So that kind of shocked me, that that's, that's the number one thing. And the second thing, which again was a bit surprising, is that when we switched from chlorofluorocarbons because of the ozone layer, we replaced them with hydro, hydrofluorocarbons, but they are one to 9,000 times stronger than CO2 for the atmosphere. And they are in refrigerators all around the world. But the hope is that there's an, just been an agreement signed, the Kigali Agreement, which is going to phase them out by 2024. So um, for the first time, I think people are realising that it's not enough just to talk about the problems anymore, that there are organisations around the world now trying to come up with plans and direct action. Um, but I think you can't do a film about climate change or the future without looking at democracy and our economic structure. And I don't think that the answer lies in the current paradigm. And I think that's what's really exciting is that there are these incredible participatory democracy um, platforms coming through now, um, run by technology, blockchain, things like that, secure ways. And there's one in Italy at the moment called the Five Star Movement, which is quite remarkable. They have a really unique way of accumulating votes in the sense that they have basic tenants, which looks after the environment, they want corruption-free politics, but whoever gets represent, whoever the representative is, they can't have a career in politics, they can't take a certain amount of money, they're almost randomly selected, and they have to sacrifice their own ego and represent exactly what the votes say. And they almost do it by Facebook sometimes. So it's this really pure form of engaging democracy, and they're winning seats in parliament, and they've just become the mayor of Rome. So they've taken over the mayor position of Rome. And the first thing they did, mayor was actually bidding for the next Olympics. And they put it out to everyone and said, look, do you want the Olympics? Everyone said, no. It's That's so Italian. Oh, we don't want this shit built here and then you leave it and then you bring your Maccas. And yeah, then don't ruin so it. So they pulled out. That's it. People want it. See ya. And that's really exciting. So exciting that it's not getting any mainstream attention. And even the us trying to research it has been a nightmare because any mainstream political analysis in Italy is like, no, that's never going to work. It's only within them that they're completely excited about what's going on. And it is. It's revolutionary. You know, and it's not a term to, look, to use lightly, but that fundamentally changes what democracy looks like. And it involves technology in, a, in an evolved way that isn't just narcissistic and taking selfies. Suddenly we might get to a point where technology becomes really useful as a tool for making good shit happen. Hmm. So that's exciting. <laughs> Can you talk yet about circular economies? Yeah. My most exciting note here. <laughs> so I think we can all agree that the, the, the way we, our economic system now works is, is kind of not, not good for everyone. It's, it's based on endless growth, and so it doesn't matter what you're doing to the environment, it doesn't matter what you're doing to Aboriginal communities. If they're having five cans of Coke, that's great, because we're hitting our, hitting our monthly markers and we're making heaps of money. That's terrific. So there are all sorts of new economic models and strategies being discussed and one of the most exciting is, is a circular economy and there's um, actually a living example of it in France, in Norpart de Calais in France. And what's great about this story is that it was a coal mining area, so the coal mine shut down. And so all these people said, right, well let's not just be despondent about this, what, what are we going to do? So all the workers have retrained themselves in... The analogy is like... Um, if you combine all the mass of ants in the world, 
it would be equal to all the mass of humans. But ants don't leave any mess and they nourish the soil and they replenish the soil and they eat and they don't waste anything. So what we need to do is mimic nature and understand that that's a really good model of operating. So that's what I would call a circular economy. Uh, what they do is any food waste that then goes back and gets used as energy or to replenish the soil in the town. Um, any excess clothes they use there, they turn into insulation vats for the house. Um, any time you throw out like a chip wrapper or a bottle, it goes into these micro factories, they break down them and reuse it again in something else. So that there's this cycle, nothing's wasted. Um, all the cutlery is made of like um, sorghum or rice, so you can eat your cutlery when you're finished. Um, just smart, like just makes sense. And the fact that people are already doing this, we're sort of showing what it can be and then we say, well, look, imagine, imagine we got to there by 2040. Imagine it's there, it's possible. We just need to, people to understand it and to see that it works and that everyone still gets jobs, but they've just, they're not doing jobs in the fossil fuel industry. They're doing jobs that replenish the earth and look after it for our kids. If we're taking that down into the micro, to the individual, um, in issue 49 for Dumbo, you were saying, uh, I think at the moment we're relying too much on people's goodwill and people just don't have the time or the capacity for that. We're too busy trying to survive and feed our own kids. People say, I don't have time for the planet. I've got to feed my kids. We're saying, you know what, you can do both. So 10 years ago, it was enough to change a light globe. What is it today? Great point. Look, that still helps, changing the light globes, there's no doubt about it. But I think we all realise now that we've kind of got to a point where we need systemic change. Like, it's, it, it's this... It's not working, the way we're operating. And, and it's interesting talking to people that knew this back in the 80s and 90s when sort of these trade deals were done in secret or, you know, they all predicted that what would ha what's happened in America with Trump voters would happen. I mean, you, you, you shift labour offshore and, and strip your own country of jobs, you financialise the economies where you, banks are making money out of thin air, it's just not going to work out for you. So I think, thankfully, all that kind of, that horror show is exposing the fragility of our economic system and our systems in general. So it's not enough anymore just to say it's, it's personal responsibility, change your light globe, switch to solar. There has to be fundamental changes on a large scale and I think that's starting to happen. And that's, that's, that's why this next 20, 30 years is going to be one of the most incredible that we will, will witness. And, and you look back through history and you see the Industrial Revolution or you see these giant changes. We're, we're going to go through one with energy. You know, our energy structure is going to look completely different in 25 years than it does now. And again, that's one of the most exciting things. We're often looking... So the film isn't just a white middle-class Elon Musk techie film. It's, it's got to feel like we're looking at all these incredible things going on in developing countries that are feeling the full brunt of our excess so they're having to adapt really quickly and somewhere like bangladesh four and a half million solar panels we've only got 1.6 in australia they've got four and a half it's the number one dowry present now in the country and so they've they've leapfrog it's like leapfrogging the the landline and going straight to the mobile and not only have they got their own grids but they've actually developed a blockchain technology where they can share their energy and there's already energy philanthropy so you know what, I'm going down to the, my mate's village for a couple of days, I'm going to sell my energy to my neighbour. You know, and this is happening now as we speak. That's, in, 
that will be with us in the next 10, 15, 20 years, but that's kind of how it's going to look in 21 years, that you'll be able to, there'll be an internet of energy and you can share it and give it to people and sell it and on-sell it. And this completely decentralised system is incredibly empower, empowering and engages communities. And then you're relying on your neighbours. And so it, there's, a, there's a ripple effect of that system that actually brings us back together and communicating in different ways and relying on each other for different needs. And that's really exciting. And it's going to happen and we're going to live through it. This is a bit far out. I just had this thought while you were talking. Do you reckon that will become the human story of the future, that we might have excess caring that we could share? In, my, in our version of 2040, there's, there's a fundamental shift that happens to, hu- to humans too. And I think, um, you know, again, if we talk about the broken economy, there was a study done only recently that said if, if this was a proper economic structure then the work that the housewife in the US does would her salary should be 120 grand a year and that's that's an economy we don't discuss we just accept that that happens um, and so what yes we have to face those issues in 2040 we have to deal with it we haven't kind of worked out exactly how to deal with that yet in terms of what what that looks like but what we will show is and again one of the most exciting things for me is these projects that are going around the world now that are teaching kids in school emotional intelligence at the same time as academic so um, there's these beautiful school kids in Tanzania and they are they have a fight in the in the schoolyard they have to work out why did I react what made me angry there some of them meditate and they have a cry and then they get back to it and that is a fundamental aspect of their curriculum so what does that look like if that's extrapolated to every school by 2040 um, what do our leaders look like that have been educated in that way and the way they interact with each other and the decisions they make when they understand their own emotions so i think almost that's probably more fundamental than anything we might look at in the film because if you get that right then there's a ripple effect of how we treat the earth and how we treat each other and whatnot do you think there's a conversation in there just while you were talking it made me think about how influential your wife has been on your creative process and how much she's inspired the first film, your life journey. Is there a feminine masculine conversation? Uh, I can categorically say that, that, that she has had, she's, yeah, she's changed my life. I mean, Zoe is a very rare human being. Like when people meet her, she just, she radiates. Like she's a, she's a very pure spirit. And when I met her, I at the same time knew that, oh, that's, this is the girl, I'm gonna, I'll, this is it. I know, but fuck, I'm not ready. I'm just not ready. And I, I'm totally not worthy. Like, I, I was 33 and my longest relationship was <coughs> three months. <coughs> I, had an, I had an image to cultivate. Like, it was very roly and, you know. And, um, and I, just, I just thought, oh, shit, I, I, I have to... I, I really, I, I really want to be with this woman, but I, I need to do some work on myself. And that's kind of was my catalyst was that... Yeah, I, I, yeah. So she she influences me in in ways that are. Uh, she she holds the space so that when I she backs that part of me that is probably that I've I've often run from, which is the more spiritual, open feminine side. Um, she's been the one that's backed me to no, it's okay. And so I always cross reference things with her or the script or the film or things, and because her barometer for truth and for that that understanding of whatever it is that's 
intangible is is incredible. Yeah, I do think we've had our time, the men, and I, and I think it's time to. I don't even see it like that. No, I, I, I think that see it as you being able to not be cool dude with the rolly and the suede jacket and pitching this status image, but you being able to be spiritual, Damon, as yeah. validated and honoured. I see that as the feminine in you. It's not fair. I'm being gendered. It might be weird, but no, anyway, no, I, I agree with you. But I also think that the world needs the balance desperately. You know, like that 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 it's time. You know, and that so it should be. You know, absolutely. And so that's something a big part of 2040. And and I'm not going to pretend to to come up with that. Thankfully, we've got some beautiful women in our team that are going to absolutely guide that narrative. Um, and that's an important point to raise is that. As much as I'm making the film, I don't w- want this to be my 2040. Like more than ever, I've had to collaborate more, much more than Sugar, and open and send early drafts of the script, which is incredibly painful. But to get an, a, a, an appraisal from all kind of walks of life of what 2040 might be, because if it's just mine, then it's kind of that's kind of what's let us down in the past. Ego saying I've got the answers, and and that's what's exciting to me about what we might be able to achieve with our outreach, which is you know the film is this much, but as you know through Good Pitch we've got money to really build quite an incredible platform off the back of it, and one of the most exciting things for me is that we can actually almost build um, a democratic platform of people that have seen the film can sign up, and then they can discuss what they saw in the film, or we can build something together, and we can go right, let's discuss that city, and who knows if we get three, four, five million people contributing to that. That's an incredibly powerful set of data to do with whatever, who knows what we do with it, but to actually get people to to feel that it's okay to contribute. Damon, you're a legend. Thanks for telling the story that needs to be told on all of our behalf. Thank you. Thanks for joining us again for the Dumbo Feather podcast. This edited conversation from a Dumbo Feather event was produced by Beth Gibson and me, Jane Nethercote. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for next month's conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. Plus, bonus, we've got a new podcast called That Time When, so you'll get two podcasts when you say hi and subscribe. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, Subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide.